Well, this is a day of miracles. Judy Montgomery is coming to the witness stand. Let me share, before she arrives, this note from Margaret Abbott. You will see in your bulletin Darwin Abbott's name in the hospital. It's been there for over a month. Thank you so much for all the prayers you have prayed and for encouraging the church to pray for us. Every doctor and nurse has told me that there is no medical reason for Darwin to be alive. He is healing. He is fighting three infections, and his spirit is so high. He has a radio in his room and listens to our service on Sunday. No love of God is being, the love of God is being poured out on us through his people. Thanks so much for all the men who have gone to Darwin's bedside and offered up prayers of thanksgiving and for healing. What a mighty and loving God we serve. It's amazing to me how something this terrible can make me love God more. But that's what's happening. Miracle number one. Judy, come and talk to us a minute about your miracle. And she is a walking miracle. God bless you. Is it easier the second time than the yeah, first? <laughs> Tell us about your miracle. Well, by all rights, I should not be standing here today. There are four doctors at Kaiser that just basically was waiting for me to die. I had a heavy diet of alcohol, and my liver was starting to dysfunction. It backed my... Um, the, the liquid in my body backed up for about three months. I lay in Kaiser for three weeks. One of the weeks, I don't remember at all, my family and my friends just kind of watched me come in and out of hallucinations. And one thing that I remembered, the Lord delivered me. There was no withdrawals. Praise God. I, uh, Amen. That's good. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. A verse that comes to me, Psalms 37, 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of thine heart. My grandmother, that's a very dear verse to her, and I know now why parents and grandmothers are still here to pray for their grandkids. <laughs> Amen. Um, I... Uh, Laid in the hospital, having hallucinations. One hallucination was I was on a train. The other hallucination was I was on a ship. It was very, very real. I can still see it to this day. Uh, talking about the emotional. My body, of course, didn't miss the alcohol. My mind did a little bit, but it was the gender of people saying, well, let's go socialize after work. And I said, no, it just doesn't really do anything for my personality. So uh, there is a way, there is a God, and I recently saw one of my doctors, one of my internists, because I did have a bleeding ulcer, I had two blood transfusions, uh, your body only holds six pints, and I had to ha have that twice, and I went back six weeks later, and the doctor looked at me, and he said, it's gone, he said, your ulcer is gone, there's just a little scar tissue, folks, God is real. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise God. And uh, are, you, are you new to the choir? How long have you been in the choir? This is my second Sunday. Second Sunday. So this is kind of a say thank you to God for yes. your miracle. Huh? There's one other thing I'd like to mention. Um, my uh, getting back into employment was quite difficult. 
And so I came to church, and I raised my hand, and I thought, if the Lord can heal me, he can certainly give me employment. I raised my hand. I got a job the next couple of weeks for an insurance company. So that got me into the, the working field, and then I was let go. For some reason, I didn't know. But I kept praying and praying and praying. And ladies and gentlemen, I waited seven years for the job that I have now, but the Lord gave me the, the talent and the gift, and I just praise him. You stood here and had some folk lay hands on you for a job, yes, and you got it. Yes, I did. I am sales representative for a temporary service, and I had done that a long time ago in the Bay Area, and I walked in and walked out with the job, and it was everyone putting, on their, putting their hands on me, and I felt the fellowship, and he just works wonders. <laughs> he just works wonders. Well, thank God for a walking miracle. Judy, thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Praise Turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 24 to verse 29. I'll read verse 24 and you read 25 to the end of the chapter. There's a great and a wonderful passage of scripture. Before we read it, I'd like to find out how many brought your Bibles. Lift them up. Great. It's good to read the scripture, but it's also good to believe it and accept it and receive it. Colossians 1.24 I will now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. God bless you. You may be seated. Well, we're in a series, A to Z, and we've come to the word disciple, which is a derivative of the word discipline. And the message is titled, Are You a Disciple? By the way, I hope you've looked ahead to next Sunday. We move to the E's. And the subject is how to survive in a sinking economy. You might ought to tell a hundred of your friends about that service. C.S. Lewis said, We are all men under construction. There may be bits of unfinished lumber showing here and there, and a few protruding nails, and unsightly scaffolding, but you can see that a work is in progress, that the builder has committed himself to bringing the building into conformity with the blueprints. That's a great paragraph by C.S. Lewis about discipleship. We are all men under construction. Some are in the beginning stages. Some are 
in the middle. You can now tell where the rooms are going to be. Some are just getting the final touches on before they go to be with him who will make us like he is when we stand in his presence, but we're all in process. Paul's great desire was expressed in verse 28 of this text. Look at it again. That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now, one of the translations can help us there. I like Philip's translation best of all. He put it this way, to bring every man up to his full maturity in Christ. That was his goal, to bring every man up to his full maturity in Christ. That is my goal. That is my desire as a pastor. The programs of this church outlined in your bulletin are to bring us up into maturity in Christ. But we have to make ourselves available if it's to happen. We have to be lumber, scaffolding, nails that are available to God for the construction of this spiritual house. You have perhaps had the sad experience that I have had of going to a couple and looking at their newborn baby and just rejoicing in the birth of a child that has two hands and two legs, and it looks fine, only to go back a few weeks later, and the child hasn't changed, still tiny and not developing. And then a year later, it's still in a stage far different than it should be until Everybody has to admit that this child is retarded. There's something wrong. That is a sad thing to experience. But friends, it happens in the spiritual realm most of the time without our acknowledgement. And that's worse yet. 2 Peter 3.18, which is the last verse of Paul's, or rather Peter's letters to the church, admonishes us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many in the church who are 10 or 15 years old in the faith have grown little beyond that of a babe. And we ought to mourn over it and weep over it. The saddest part of it all is that so often they don't even realize it. They're still infants when they should be adults in their relationship with Christ and his church. Now, where could we go for some help? How to be a disciple? I have researched it for you, and Jesus said there are three things that we have to take note of if we're to be a disciple. Just three. Isn't that great? Not 30. Oh, I'm so glad. It's only three. Just three things. That's all I could find that Jesus said would make us a disciple. The first one was in John chapter 8, verse 31, when he said, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciple. The word then is obedience. 
There's the number one need or characteristic of a disciple. Obedience. John 8, 31. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciple. Now that word continue is an interesting word. It means that something started somewhere. And of course we know that is conversion. To be born again. And that experience is met with enthusiasm. I mean these new creatures in Christ are happy. They're enthusiastic. They carry big Bibles about the size of this notebook. It's the family Bible. They don't know there are smaller ones available. The older you get, the smaller it gets. And they sit up near the front, and they don't know what to do in church. It's so wonderful to watch them. I like it. They don't know what the tithy is. I had one come to me with an envelope from the pew rack, said, Pastor, what is this tithy? That's delightful. And I had the joy of telling them what the tithe was, in case you didn't get it. <laughs> Enthusiastic, like a little baby. They're just bouncing around. But they need help. They need guidance. And they're going to grow. Michael Griffith said, enthusiasm is easier than obedience. And that's what we have to teach them. It's great to be enthusiastic, which is the Greek entheos, God in us. That's what it means. Enthusiasm means God in us. So it's right to be enthusiastic. That means God is in you if you're enthusiastic for the right things. But remember, obedience is what continues. I thought of King Saul when he was anointed king, head and shoulders above all of Israel. Man, he was stalwart. He was tremendous in faith and in leadership. But he didn't continue. Samuel had to Look him in the face one day and declare to the king these words, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. Oh, started so great. Ended up so miserably. Why? Because he didn't continue. He wasn't obedient to obey. Samuel said he's better than sacrifice. We proceed in obedience. Continue implies being possessed by God. It means what Jesus said on his knees in Gethsemane. Not my will, but thine be done. Obedience. Continuing. Saul lost his life. He lost his crown. He lost his kingdom because he didn't continue in obedience to God. The character of consecration is what God wants to restore in the church today. They asked me to speak at a convention on 
What does the Assemblies of God need to do before the year 2000? One of the things I said was that we have to be a people of holiness. Holiness has to come back into our vocabulary. God is holy. And we treat him as though he were somebody down the street. He's a holy God. And he demands obedience from his subjects. You don't have the right to decide the way you're going to do it. God has established his word for you to obey. And if we are going to be the church we should be, we're going to have to come back to consecration. It was manifested by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. I need to read these verses ever now and again to feel the impact of this man's life. Met the Lord on the road to Damascus and was enthusiastic about his new faith. But he learned to obey. He said, I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That means five times he had 39 lashes from the Roman whip put on his body. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods, which means clubs. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness besides the other things what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And we have a hard time getting out of bed to get to church. Say amen. And we can't get back on Sunday night. After all, our little kiddies have to get their sleep. And we can't come on Wednesday night because, oh, our business is just too full. Baloney. Nonsense. If you want to get out of the baby stage, you've got to consecrate. And I'm telling you as a servant of God, my absolute conviction is that some of the things we've read from Paul's life will not be unusual in America not too far down the road. Just remember I said it, will you? Where are you going to be? Who are you going to obey? They stripped Paul of his clothing. They lashed him until bleeding and lacerated and broken. He fell helpless and unconscious time and again. Then they doused him with a bucket of salt water to keep the maggots off his body and his sores and threw him into a cell to recover. This was the price of discipleship for him, of obedience. 
We find it difficult to follow the simple schedule that we lay out for the growth and the development of our spiritual lives. God, help us and put something back into the church that says we will be everything God intended us to be. Onward, Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. I want to be obedient, no matter what it costs. That's what Jesus said it's going to take. Second thing he said was in John 13, 35. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So the word is love. Put it down, love, that's the second mark or characteristic of a disciple, love. Ask yourself, what do I love the most? Billy Graham said, whatever you love most, be it sports, pleasure, business, or God, that is your God. We have many gods. We are a people of many gods. And the test of true discipleship is if you have love one for another. Those early disciples, when Jesus met them, loved their boats, loved their tax benefits, loved their nets and their surroundings. But when they met Jesus, their love changed. They left their nets. They left the tax booths and all the benefits thereof. And they followed Jesus. Sometimes we read all of that and we think, that's it. If I am to be a disciple of Jesus, all the fun is going to go out of my life. That's the biggest lie the devil ever sold us. You never really know how to have fun until you have Jesus. Because that's when you know how to love. When you know how to love unconditionally. Love must be our greatest aim, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 14.1. He said it in two words, pursue love. I looked that up in a few translations, and the Living Bible said it this way, Let love be your greatest aim. I said, Lord, I'll buy that. Help me to love my wife the way I should. Love my children the way I should. To love this church the way I should, and everybody in it the way I should. Even when they criticize me, help me to love them the way I should. And let me tell you, it ain't easy. But it's fun. It really is. Let love be my greatest aim. Paul wrote to the church and he said, A man is successful when he treats his wife like his own body. For he said, No man ever yet hated his own body. But he loves it and he nourishes it and he cherishes it. So should a man love his wife as he loves his own flesh. Let love be your aim. 
And a wife is successful when she treats her husband with honor and respect. And Sarah called Abraham Lord because she respected him so. We would call that really corny today, I think. So Paul summed it all up in Ephesians 5.21 when he said simply, Honor Christ by submitting to each other. Honor Christ by submitting to each other. There's so much criticism and judgmental attitude even in the church. We don't like this and we don't like that. Listen, my friends, nobody is here to hurt somebody. The work of the kingdom of God is not to make life miserable for us, but to make life better. Let's submit to each other in love and move on as disciples of Jesus Christ. And then the world will say, I want what they've got. They love one another. Would you forgive this illustration? I hope you will mis not misunderstand me. A lady said to my wife this week, she didn't go to an agape group last week because she was afraid some blacks might be in the group. My heart just broke. I couldn't believe it. That someone could attend this church for any period of time and think that there's some level in humanity. We are all one. We are all children of God and created in the image of God. I don't see any color when I stand up here. That kind of thing that kind of thing will set the church back a thousand years. Jesus said, if you want to prove your mind, then you love everybody. You love one another. Start right with your own family. I love you. I'd die for you. No matter who you are, what your background, what strata, I love you because Jesus loves you and he cares about you and he's put me here to shepherd you. I love you because of the love of Jesus Christ. Let it spread abroad like a fire until the world will know we are truly his disciples. Well, there's one more, and I know you're glad they're not 30. Now, John 15, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. There it is, fruit. Fruit, three simple words, obedience, love, and fruit. What kind of fruit you got hanging from your limbs? What is the fruit of my life? That's a good question to ask. Is it discord or strife or debt or disharmony? Or is it Galatians 5, 22 and 23? 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, long-suffering, kindness. <sighs> what is the fruit of my life? So many I speak with these days don't seem to have real happiness and satisfaction in life, and that just really disturbs me. So many people don't seem to be enjoying what they ought to be enjoying. They're on the move. I mean, they're really busy, but where are they going? I thought of the airplane pilot who announced to his passengers, ladies and gentlemen, I have some good news and some bad news. That's really great when you're 30,000 feet in the air flying along. He said, the bad news is that our instrumentation has gone out and we don't know where we're going. The good news is that we've picked up a tailwind and are making good time. <laughs> and I've seen folk like that. They really are moving, but where are they going? They've lost their instrumentation. Where is the fruit of their life? They got a big tailwind, but they don't know where they are nor where they're heading. You know what the bottom line is? Fruit is what the judgment is all about. When you stand before God in judgment, the big thing is fruit. Paul said, now listen, folk. It will be either wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones, and you decide what it's going to be when you stand before God. Fruit. And you're producing it now, good or bad. The wonderful thing is that God allows us to come to church so that we can improve on our crop. We can do some pruning, and I know that's important. We can separate the good from the bad so the good doesn't get corrupted and we can bring forth a good crop. I used to love Bear Bryant, the coach of... Alabama. He had an assembly of God mother. Bear Bryant was a great coach and he said some tremendous things. And this is one thing I loved when he said, my favorite play in football is the one where the player tosses the ball back to the official after scoring a touchdown. That was Bear's favorite play. And I thought that's what the Bible is about. When the Lord gathers his kids in, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. The record proves you had fruit, and I welcome you. Come on in to the joy of your Lord. That's what it's about. The judgment bar of God is that he can approve the fruit of your life. Boy, that's going to be exciting, I hope. Are you a disciple? What's your life producing? What's your family like? What kind of influence do you have in the community? What have you done this week just for Jesus' sake that you wouldn't have had to do other than the fact you were a follower? 
Earl Nightingale told the story of an elderly couple who found their way into Philadelphia in a great storm, a rainstorm that just had to get them into a hotel somewhere and they couldn't find a room. They walked into an older hotel that wouldn't have been their normal pick and there was a young man behind the counter and they said, what's going on that there are no rooms? He said, there is a convention in the city that has tied up all of the hotels. There aren't any rooms anywhere. But he said, I can't send a nice couple like you out into the storm at 1 o'clock in the morning. He said to that couple, would you mind taking my room? Oh, we can't do No, I would like you to. I will be all right. I will fare okay. Please take my room. And he convinced them and he escorted them to his room and they spent the night. And in the morning at the desk as they were paying the bill, they were so impressed with this young man, he picked up their luggage to carry it out to the street for them. And the old gentleman said to him, you know, you're the kind of manager who should be the boss in the best hotel in the country. Maybe someday I'll build one for you. And he laughed, and the, the elderly couple laughed with him because he, he thought that was really funny. Forgot about it. Two years passed. He was his faithful self at that old hotel when after two years a letter came from New York with tickets in it for a trip to New York to meet the elderly couple. He went. They took him down to the corner of 5th Avenue and 34th Street where he saw a great new building that had arisen out of New York City, a palace of reddish stone with watchtowers like a fairyland castle reaching through the sky. The older man said to this young manager, that is the hotel I've just built for you to manage. This guy was shocked. He said, you must be joking. He said, who in the world are you anyway? He said, my name is William Waldorf Astor. We are naming the hotel the Waldorf Astoria, and you are to be its first manager. So George C. Bolt found how his service led him to be one of the world's great hotel managers. I thought, Lord, how many of those kind of folk have I got in my church who just out of the sheer joy of serving are making an impact for Christ day by day? I pray there is a multitude. And I pray that there will be many more after this morning. Jesus has called us to be his follower, a learner, a servant. And he condensed everything we need to know in three words. Be obedient to me. Do what I say. Love me and love other people. And bear fruit. Somebody is probably bearing evil fruit. <laughs> probably one of your sons somewhere on this campus. You can deal with it later. Don't leave.
God has given us a life. What a gift. A disciple is a learner, a manager of what God gives. And it's not complicated, brothers and sisters. I just am so tired of the books that are coming out. I tell you, there's so many books, so many tapes. How do you keep up with it all? And I feel one of my ministries is to come to this pulpit and just make it as simple as possible and say, folk, here's what works. So here I am. Here's what works. Be obedient. Love God and love people and bear fruit. That's all you need to know. Now, if you learn a few other things, that's okay. But that'll do you well if you just hear it with your heart and follow it daily. What God wants us to do is to just get in step. Life is full and beautiful and meaningful, exciting when we follow him in that way. Do we have any takers this morning? We have some takers. Stand up. Stand to your feet. I'm a taker. I want to be that way. I want to be a disciple. I'm standing. Boy, I, I'm not going to sit down on this one. I'm standing up. I want to be a disciple, follower. I'm not going to do it my way. I'm going to do it his way. I'm going to love the way he loves. I'm going to bear fruit the way he wants me to bear fruit. To be like Jesus, that's kind of the summary, isn't it? And it's the song I want you to sing with me. To be like Jesus. Then I'm going to pray for you if you really mean it. Oh, there is a power here. I just feel electricity in this room. There is a power here that's dynamic. And it's going to touch folk. Let's just be like him. What a task. What a challenge to be like Jesus. All I ask to be like him. A disciple.